If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Happy belated Halloween. Welcome back to Paranormal Activity with me, Yvette Fielding. And in this Halloween special, we're taking a look at witchcraft, the Pendle Witches, and some spells you can try at home. We kick things off with this week's fact or fiction. So listen to the answer at the end. So here it is. Are you ready? One of the earliest records of witches is in the Bible. One of the earliest records of witches is in the Bible. Is it fact or fiction? Find out at the end of the show. And later in the show, we'll be hearing all about the different tools the Pendle Witches had in their arson to create some of the spells they were tried for from friend of the show and award-winning writer Barry McCann. Lovely, always lovely chatting to Barry. But first, we'll be hearing about a spell that you can do at home later in the show. So get the following ingredient ready. Oh, there's so much to this. All you need is a cord or a piece of string. So get running now. Press pause and go and get it now. Great, you're back. Got got it? Fabulous. Right, brilliant. Hold on to that for now because you're going to need them later in the episode. Now we've got all our ingredients of a piece of cord, settle on down, as this is an episode all around witches and the Pendle witches. And I'd love to start off and get us in the mood by reading to you a segment from my new instalment, The Ghost Hunter Chronicles, my new book, The Witches of Pendle. So, so far in the book, a young family, mum, Molly, dad, Steve, and their seven-year-old son, Jamie, have just moved into their new home in Pendle Hill, Malkin's Cottage. The young boy, having explored the garden, discovered an old witch's bottle hidden in an ancient oak tree. After showing his parents the extraordinary and creepy find, a storm rains heavy over Pendle Hill and the little cottage. And we join the story as Mum Molly is woken in the middle of the night by a strange and peculiar noise. As darkness fell across the Lancashire countryside, the lights in the little cottage were turned off one by one and the family settled down for a well-deserved sleep. At about 2am, Molly thought she was dreaming. She could hear Jamie singing. The tune was lovely, but in the dream, Molly was scared. She didn't like the words. 
She snapped her eyes open, only to realise that she wasn't dreaming at all and that the singing was coming from the kitchen. Confused, she got out of bed and padded down the hallway, following her son's voice. She stopped short when she saw Jamie sitting with his back to her in the middle of the floor. He swung from side to side as he sang. Molly had never heard the song before. Witches in the garden, witches in the tree. Turn around, turn around, one, two, three. Look inside the bottle, you will see. Five witches in the garden will come to you and me. Jamie, she placed her hand on his little shoulder. He stopped instantly, but didn't turn or respond. Molly walked around to face him, and as soon as she looked at him, she recoiled in horror. His eyes were marble white, and his face was a sickly greenish tinge. She tried to pick him up, but he viciously slapped her away with one hand while clutching the strange glass bottle to his chest with the other. Then, in an eerie woman's voice she didn't recognise, Jamie spoke. We are coming. We will have our revenge. In that terrifying moment, Molly knew they needed help. She screamed for Steve. As she called his name over and over, she noticed that the strange blue bottle had been opened. The wax seal snapped off. Steve ran into the kitchen and instantly saw what the matter was. To his horror, he saw that Jamie's face, body and whole demeanour had changed. What the hell? he whispered. Molly had begun to cry. I don't know what's happened to him, but he's not right, Steve. We have to get him to the hospital or something. It's all right, Molly, it'll be all right. Steve went to pick Jamie up, but was met with punches and kicks. The strange bottle fell from the boy's protective grip and landed on the floor. The little figures danced up and down as they clattered and banged against the coloured glass. It rolled across the wooden floor, disappeared into the dark shadows. Now, leave me, screeched Jamie. His voice was low and guttural. Steve recoiled in shock. Then loud, menacing, banging noises began to vibrate throughout the house. What's that? screamed Molly. I don't know. Come on, let's get Jamie and get out of here. Steve and Molly both made a grab for their son. The little boy screamed, kicked, bit and scratched. Terrified, his parents eventually managed to get him to the front door. But he kicked and screamed the whole way. It won't open, Steve. Here, let me. Keep hold of Jamie, though. Hold him tight. Steve pulled at the door. But nothing happened. The knocking noises were getting louder and louder, and suddenly Jamie stopped fighting. It's here, he growled in his new sinister voice. Jamie slipped through his mother's grasp and fell to the floor. His breathing came in rasping waves. The knocking was now happening at a terrific pace, so much so that Molly could feel the walls beginning to vibrate. And then she saw it. Steve followed his wife's shaking finger. A dark, shadowy figure had come silently towards them. This thing, whatever it was, loomed over them all. It looked like an old woman, but Steve couldn't be too sure. He suddenly felt a pressure on his throat. It felt like someone was crushing his Adam's apple. He stood up, choking and grasping at his throat, trying desperately to breathe. He managed to pull in some air and staggered his way to the window. Taking a lamp, he threw it with as much force as he could muster and the window splintered into a thousand pieces. This way, he gasped to Molly. He picked up their son and after Steve had climbed out first, Molly passed the boy to him. She took one look back and saw that the shadowy figure had disappeared. The family left the little cottage for the last time that night. They all knew they would never be coming back. So, 
Why are the Pendle Witches so legendary? Well, this is probably one of the most notorious witch trials of the 17th century, where 12 people were accused of witchcraft and only one was found not guilty. And just to put that into perspective, over the three centuries that saw witch trials held in England, less than just less than 500 people were executed. The Pendle Witch Trials in the summer of 1612 therefore accounts for 2% of all witches executed. Six out of the 11 witches on trial came from two rival families, the Demdike family and the Chattox family, and they were both headed by old poverty-stricken widows, Anne Whittle, a.k.a. Mother Chattox, and Elizabeth Soddens, a.k.a. Old Demdike, who had been known as a witch for 50 years and was a well-known village healer who practiced magic and dealt in herbs and medicine. And this was a time when witchcraft was not only feared by people, but it also fascinated them. The king was sceptical about witchcraft, and this was reflected in the feelings of an unrest about witchcraft among the common people. Lancashire was seen as a wild and lawless society and was thought of as, quote, where the church was honoured without much understanding of its doctrines by the common people. It was with this background of unseen that the two judges made their investigations and sentenced the Pendle witches. And the story began with an altercation between one of the accused, Alison Device, and a peddler, John Law. Alison, either travelling or begging on the road to Trawden Forest, passed John Law and asked him for some pins. Now, it's not known whether her intention was to pay for them or whether she was just begging. He refused, did John Law, and Alison then cursed him. It was a short while after this that John Law suffered a stroke for which he blamed Alison and her powers. When this incident was brought before Justice Noel, Alison confessed that she had told the devil to lame John Law. And it was upon further questioning that Alison accused her grandmother, Old Demdike, and also members of the Chattox family of witchcraft. The accusations on the Chattox family seemed to have been an act of revenge. The families had been feuding for years, perhaps since one of the Chattox family broke into the home of the Demdikes and stole goods to the value of a pound, which was approximately the equivalent of a hundred pounds today, which was an awful lot of money then. The deaths of the four other villagers that had occurred years before the trial were raised and the blame laid on witchcraft performed by Chattox. On further questionings, both Old Demdike and Chattox confessed to selling their souls. And after hearing this evidence, the judge detained Alison, Anne, Old Demdike and Old Chattox and waited for the trial. Now, the trials were held at Lancaster Castle between the 17th and the 19th of August, 1612, and Old Demdike never reached the trial. The dark, dank dungeon in which they were imprisoned was too much for her to survive. Nine-year-old Janet Device was a key supplier of evidence for the Pendle Witches' trial, which was allowed under the system from King James. And all normal rules of evidence could be suspended for witch trials, and someone so young would not have been able to supply key evidence normally. Janet gave evidence against those who attended the meeting at Malkin Tower, but also against her mother, her sister and her brother. And when she gave evidence against Elizabeth, her mother, Elizabeth had to be removed from the court, screaming and cursing her daughter. 
Some of the Pendle witches seemed to be genuinely convinced of their guilt, whereas others fought to clear their names. Alison Device was one of those who believed in her own powers and was also the only one on trial who was faced with the other victims, John Law. When John entered the court, it's documented that Alison fell to her knees and confessed and burst into tears. The wild accusations here escalated, fueled by a general feeling of unrest and fear of witchcraft across the country, making this the biggest and most notorious witch trial. Now, Alice Nutter, a wealthy landowner at the time, was also wrongly accused of being a Pendler witch. She just happened to be at Malkin's Tower to discuss sheep or land on that dreadful day when the prosecutor Noel turned up at the house. She was totally innocent, but just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, all these people, in my opinion, should be pardoned today. There were poor people trying to make ends meet by selling homeopathic lotions and potions and medicines. Elizabeth Demdike confessed to being a witch and I communicated with her when we invested Pendle Hill years ago. If you've ever watched that show, you'll remember it was her spirit that came through and caused all sorts of paranormal phenomena that was absolutely terrifying to everybody. In fact, she followed us to various locations how would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And came through threatening us with violence. Was it really her spirit or something else at play? I'll never really know, but I have an inkling it was definitely her. Now, this week, we hear from an anonymous listener with his paranormal encounter at his late mother's home. 
Hi, Vet and team. I've got a couple of stories to share with you, and I'm a bit open-minded when it comes to things like this. I'm not a believer, but I'm not a disbeliever, if you see what I mean. And either way, both these things bring me a bit of comfort, but whether there's any truth or anything real going on here, I don't know. Maybe you'll be able to tell me what you think. So anyway, last month, we lost my mum to cancer. She was 88. Uh, she'd had a good life. So it was obviously sad, but it was nice at the same time because she'd lived a great life and she was healthy for pretty much most of her life. Anyway, one reason or another, which I won't go into, we only had two months to clear her house from the date which she died. So we could clear the house and then we put it on the market. So we were spending a lot of time at the house, virtually every day, popping in, picking up bits and pieces and checking the post and all those kind of things. I think it was about two days after she'd passed away, I was at the house. I can't remember what I was doing, but I always felt a little bit strange going into the house without actually sort of talking to her. So I would go in the house walking down the hallway and say hi mum how you doing and all those kind of things and just chat with her while I'm walking around the house otherwise it just felt a bit weird and then I said to her I don't suppose you're going to leave me one of those white feathers are you just a flippant comment I didn't think anything more of it and then when I went back into my car I sat down on the passenger seat next to me was a big white feather coincidence or not I don't know but the other one is a little bit stranger the second story so as I said we've been clearing out the house gradually uh, but the one room that we left pretty much untouched until the end was her bedroom which is at the front of the house she lived in a bungalow and it didn't matter what time of the day it was or what the weather was like outside her bedroom was always distinctly colder than the rest of the house and it always smelled of her but i mean that's no big surprise because all her stuff was still in it her clothes and um all the bed sheets and everything were still on the bed so it was going to smell of her but a lot colder than the rest of the house Anyway, on the day after her funeral, uh, we had planned to go to the house and have a good old clear out. So um, I was the first to arrive. So I did a little bit of a, a tour around the house and had a look in all the rooms just to kind of see what we had to be done. And the last room I went into was her bedroom. And as soon as I opened the door and walked in the bedroom, the temperature was exactly the same as in every other room in the house. Uh, it was no longer colder. And also it didn't smell of her anymore even though all her stuff was still in it, it didn't smell of her anymore. That wasn't that weird? And I didn't say anything. Um, and then a little bit later on, my wife and I were sitting in my mum's garden having a break. And she said to me, have you noticed that your mum's bedroom isn't cold anymore and doesn't smell of her anymore? So she'd noticed it too. So it wasn't just me. I don't know whether there's anything, whether she was in the house or or in the bedroom and then she passed after her funeral I, I have no idea but it's nice to believe that perhaps she was there and it brought me a little bit of comfort I'm certainly not going to forget it in a hurry so I thought I'd share those two things with you and thank you for a great podcast it's an entertaining listen and um, well make of those what you will take care Well, thank you for sharing your wonderful experiences. I love the white feather appearing in your car. And the fact that you had asked for one just before is absolutely wonderful. You see, they are listening. Take comfort from that and always, always hold it in your heart. That was your mum saying, hello, I'm here. Do you know, my dad told me via the knocking and tapping that he had been at the funeral and that, wait for it, and that he'd sat on the end of the coffin enjoying a cigarette. And it was the sort of thing that I could see my dad doing and sort of laughing about it all. 
And it sounds to me that your mum was very much present around you and your family just after she passed. And after the funeral, seeing that you were all all right, she then went home. She went back to paradise. That doesn't mean that she'll never come back because they do and more often than not. In fact, they are around us a lot more than you think. So keep talking to your mum. She's there and she can see and hear you as you now know. Baffled, the fact podcast bringing you some amazing facts that are complete nonsense. More people in the world have mobile phones than toilets. Since most people are right-handed, in World War II, the Germans trained their army to eat with their left hand so they could spot spies in the cafeteria. A woodpecker's tongue actually wraps all the way around its brain, protecting it from damage when it's hammering into a tree. You can find us wherever you got this podcast. Just search for Baffled Amazing Facts. This week, we're joined by friend of the show, Barry McCann. He is a Lancashire-based award-winning writer, speaker and broadcaster who is well-known for his eerie and spooky tales. Actually featured in our first ever bonus episode on the Pendle Witches, and he joins us now to tell us more about life for witches at the time of the Pendle Witches, the spells perhaps that they would have used and ingredients uh, that they would have had access to and how they were used and perhaps who would have come to them. Welcome, Barry. Welcome back on the show. How are you doing? Hi there. Thank you very much for having me back. Yeah, I'm doing very, very well. Thank you very much. Wonderful. So tell us a little bit about, we know about the Pendle Witches because we have done a couple of episodes about them. The book that I've got out is uh, about the Pendle Witches. But, you know, you do your research, don't you, as you know, being an award-winning writer, you do your research before you write and so on and so on. And it really opens your eyes, doesn't it, into kind of what went on and, and the awfulness of and the injustice, particularly in the Pendle Witches case, of the whole thing. At that time because they were accused obviously of witchcraft and using poppet dolls and spells and so on what sort of spells would they have done were they real dark spells or were they just sort of the homeopathic spells to make people better they certainly had a reputation in the area of being healers most people in that demographic would not be able to afford a conventional doctor. You know, there was no NHS. So they would go to the, the wise women or the cunning men, which was the male equivalent, who, were, as you say, were herbalists, had knowledge of herbs and would do herbal remedies. And I'll list them for you in a minute. So I think they did mainly good. Of course, when they were arrested and tried, they were accused of doing black magic and, and harming others. I mean, accusations that were absolutely ridiculous. But the court records did go into great detail of how they went about, you know, invoking maybe curses on people they didn't like or people that crossed them. One example which sticks in everybody's mind is the idea of doing clay pictures of your victim. And the son of uh, Elizabeth Davis, um, James, uh, apparently uh, did this on two people he uh, fell out with. And what he would do, he would make a clay picture, presumably, of them. He would dry it out by a fire so it would slowly, over the next couple of days, flake away. And that would transfer to the intended victim who would fall ill and basically flake away until they died. And he was accused of doing that to at least two people, one being a woman he fell out with because she wouldn't let him have any turf off her land. So beware. 
<laughs> okay. I've never heard of clay pictures before. Obviously, I've heard of poppets and clay dolls and yeah, so on. Poppets. But clay pictures, yeah. Is that what you mean? Or, or, were they pop or were they proper clay pictures? From other research I can find, they were like clay pictures. Oh, interesting. Yes. I doubt very much whether he was artist enough to do an exact likeness of the intended, but it was about the intention and the representation. And this is interesting because... We associate pins with witchcraft. Well, pins were very, very important in witchcraft, of course. They were used for a lot of things. Now, again, back in those days, most country people would use blackthorn points, which were from the thorns of blackthorn trees, because they were light, slender, sharp. They could be stabbed off the tree, and they didn't cost you anything. Metal pins were, of course, hand-forged in those days, so they weren't manufactured, so they were expensive and beyond the means of a lot of people. So when um, Alison Devizes stopped the uh, peddler, John, on his way to um, coming through the forest to try and get hold of his pins, we can now understand why she was desperate to get her hands on them, because they were proper metal pins she could use in her magic. And John Law, being somebody who was quite a regular in the area, he wasn't just a, a random traveller, he probably would have known of Alison, if not known her personally, he would have known the reputation of her family. And he'd have been equally determined, no, you're not getting me pins because you might do something bad with them. Now, in fact, they could do good or bad. Now, of course, the popular black magic spell with pins and effigies is to make a wax effigy of somebody you want to get, get back at to at. Um, you probably forge it over a heated tile or something. If you could get hold of a lock of their hair or a clipping of the nail, they'd incorporate that even better. And you would stick the pin with the intent of causing harm. So you might stick it in the heart, bring on a seizure, or might stick it in the leg to make them lame, things like that. It's just as likely, though, uh, that Alison, if, say, she fell in love with um, somebody in the village and wanted him to reciprocate, might use the same method for a love spell. So she might make an effigy of him, or she might use an apple or an onion to represent his heart and stick the pin in, but not to do harm, but to persuade his heart to reciprocate to hers, for, basically for him to fall in love with her. I can see everybody listening now rushing yes. out or going into the cupboards to find an onion. Oh, please. Oh, go on. You must know the way to do it. So if you, this is a great thing that listen carefully. If you, if you fancy somebody and you want them to love you back, go, go, Barry. Tell us how we do it. The traditional method is nine pins. You use eight of the pins to create a circle in the, the apple or the onion or whatever it is you're using. And then you stick the other pin right in the centre while uttering the name of the person to create that magic. And hopefully they will then suddenly be besotted with you. They'll probably dream about you at night. You may put the said object under your bed at night, um, hopefully to dream about them to make the magic work even further. So it's an interesting thing that pins were used for both good and bad, or supposedly bad. It's not the method that creates the desired result. It's the intention behind the method. And in using pins, when you think about it, it's like you're injecting the subject with whatever your intent is, whether it's to harm them or turn them around to your way of thinking. 
Absolutely fascinating. And, and like I say, I, I, I think a lot of people will be rewinding that bit and, and uh, stabbing onions and, uh, and apples. But if you're going to put it under your bed, I would say an apple because you wouldn't want to be smelling of rotten onions, would you? So what else would they uh, uh, fuse? And also witch's bottles, which I find absolutely fascinating. And my lovely, late, great, beautiful friend, Paul O'Grady, actually found a witch's bottle on his land. I think it was quite a few months before he died. I'm not saying that had anything to do with it, of course. But he, again, was just as fascinated as I as I was. So just tell us about the witches' bottles as well. And would the Pendle witches possibly have used those? They may well have done. I mean, the witches' bottles could were made up of certain herbs or roots or other elements that they felt might have magical properties. They'd be used, I think, for many different things. They'd be used to bring good luck to an area that be used to ward off bad luck or maybe bad spirits. Quite often when they're discovered, they're often discovered in the foundations or walls of buildings. Rather like mummified cats have found the walls of buildings because they were believed to ward off bad spirits. They may be used as a way of warding off sickness. So again, all sorts of uses, um, it would be the intention behind them. They will probably contain a potion of some sort. Now, of course, the most famous witch's potion that we all know is the one that uh, Shakespeare spelled out in Macbeth, or if you're superstitious, the, Scot- the Scottish play. Mind you, I've just said it, haven't I? Go out the room, turn around three times, spit on the floor and come back in. You'll be all right. Now, if you remember, <laughs> uh, the Weird Sisters, when they were mixing the potion, it was Eye of Newt and Toe of Frog, Wool of Bat and Tongue of Dog, Adder's Fork and Blind Worm's Sting, Lizard's leg and howlet's wing. Now that sounds a pretty nasty combination, but they weren't literally animal parts. They were folk names for parts of plants and herbs. So terms like legs, toes, hands and wings often refer to stalks or leaves of a particular plant that might resemble the animal's body parts. Ah. Dragon's blood, which is often the thing you find in, in witches' ingredients, is probably the sap. So I right. mute is actually mustard seed. So bear that in mind next time you put your mustard on your hot dog. <laughs> and what it is, it's got an anti-inflammatory, it's antiseptic, antibacterial. So it's got health benefits. Toa frog is a buttercup, which apparently is good for arthritis and blisters or nerve pain. Wool of bat is really wing of bat. That refers to holly leaves, which are good for digestive problems or water retention. Tongue of dog refers to the plant hound's tongue, which I believe is used for things like bronchitis and skin diseases and, and again, digestive problems. Adder's fork is adder's tongue, which is a plant used to treat ulcers. Lizard's leg is ivy. I think that's used for rheumatism. Howlet's wing is actually garlic. We all, we all know the uh, benefits of garlic, of course. So that's where all that comes from. That's amazing. And of course, this would have come through generations, wouldn't it, of learning about the plants. And isn't it so sad that because the majority of the the population at the time and still don't understand the importance of plants and how they can heal and help the human body, because they think it's, oh, for goodness sake, you know, what a load of old nonsense. And they were frightened of it. It's fear, isn't it, that makes them turn around and go, witchcraft, that's it. It's, It's it's demonic. It's evil. It's 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 so that makes me so sad. And these poor people were hanged, and not just the Pendle witches. Many people were executed and hanged all over the world for doing such things. And even still to this day, aren't there in some parts of Africa, for instance? I mean, it, it's absolutely appalling. Oh, it's awful. 
I mean, they were the original herbalists, and uh, I mean, how far this knowledge goes back, anybody knows, but it was passed down, passed down. But of course, these were, I mean, particularly 1612, which we're talking about, was a highly charged climate, as you discussed in previous shows. You know, James I was on the throne. He had been, I think it was 1603, succeeded Elizabeth. He was convinced there were people out to dethrone or worse, that they were using witches to try and do that. And of course, that fear was fueled by the gunpowder plot, which was a papist plot. And he believed the Catholics were using witches. So, of course, he wrote his treaty, Demonology, which reaffirmed the thing about thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. I mean, he, he didn't invent the law. A lot of people think he did. It, it was there. He just reaffirmed it, propped it back mm-hmm. up. And, you know, created this climate also paranoia, but also of political ambition. You know, Roger Knoll, the magistrate who prosecuted the so-called penal witches and packed them off to Lancaster and, and in one case, York. He was a newly appointed court judge. He was obviously out to please his masters. And what better way of pleasing the ultimate master by delivering a bag full of witches? And Thomas Potts, who was the court scribe who wrote The Wonderful Discovery of Witches, which is basically an account of the court proceedings, he was a very, very ambitious man too. He was keen to get on in, and indeed he did. He found favour with court after that. I mean, the accuracy of his transcript is highly questionable. He wrote so much detail with very little in the way of stenography in those days. He was going to buy on it I mean, how much of what he put down was actually what was said and what happened and how much was what he conjectured afterwards? Who knows? The whole trial for me, by the way, if you, if you haven't read the trial or, or gone into detail about the trial and you're listening and finding this interesting, you must. It, it, isn't it, Barry? It's a really fantastic, fascinating and very sad. It's remarkable. It really, really is. And I think the fact that Elizabeth Demdike, there was uh, Chattox, wasn't there? And there was old Demdike, the two matriarchs of both families. I think Elizabeth was the only, well, she was, she was the only one that actually said, yes, I, I am a witch. She was the, she admitted to it, but she wasn't hanged. She died in the, in the prison cell, didn't she? She, she died in prison before she could be convicted. Yeah. But I wonder, isn't that interesting how she admitted to it. I wonder what sort of went on in her mind there where she just thought, oh, maybe she just thought, I'm going to die anyway. What the hell? I'll, I'll scare the yeah. crap out of them and tell them I'm a witch, you know. <laughs> That's a lovely thought, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, Demdike and Chatox, they were both incredibly old. I mean, they were both about mm, 80. Yeah. Which back then was an amazing age to get to. Yeah. They were probably senile. I think, I think we can say that maybe she was a bit self-deluded, maybe she had senile. She, uh, she was said to be blind Mm. and this is something that interests me in particular because many many years ago my my mother who is no longer with us towards the end of her life she had the condition macular degeneration which uh, it results in your sense of vision sort of going you still have peripheral vision and it's a result of getting unusually old that's why it's a condition that's only become more apparent in recent years for a while she started having these almost like illusions of seeing snakes on the floor. And she knew they weren't real. But when she reported this, she was told that with some sufferers of macular degeneration, what happens for a while, the brain, which is what we really see with, the, you know, the eyes taking the data, the brain assembles it into what, what 
we, we perceive as vision. Mm. Sometimes if there's a bit missing, it sort of automatically tries to fill in the gap by reaching into the images from the subconscious. And one thing about my mum was she had a fear of snakes. Oh, how terrifying. So when then you read the accounts of Dendike saying she, she had a familiar called Boar, which took the form of a black dog yeah. or other kind of black shapes, it kind of makes you wonder, ah, hang on, mm. was this a medical condition going on? Mm, absolutely. It makes sense. And maybe that yeah. sort of reaffirmed in her own mind, yes, I am a witch, I've got the power, they send me familiars, I must be. Or maybe she said, she just thought, well, I've had it anyway, I might as well go with a blaze. Or maybe she was really an evil witch. We don't, we, nobody knows, do they? We, nobody Which knows. is why we fill in with speculation. And this is where sometimes myths evolved. We don't know about what happened to nine-year-old Jeanette, who, of course, going back to the trial, she was the sensational star witness, the surprise witness who was brought in, put on a table, let the name be set forth on a table, said the George, and denounced her own mother and denounced others. And Alice Nutter, the woman who was supposedly at the Good Friday secret meeting, who, unlike the others, was not a peasant or a farmer, she was quite well-to-do landowner. And, of course, she was accused by little Jeanette of being there. She was hanged. She said very little in defence. She was a Catholic from a Catholic family. I think she had a lot to hide. And I think Roger Noel had a lot to gain from getting rid of her because it said that he and her had a bit of a land dispute going on. Now, this hasn't been proved, by the way. No, I was going to say, this is the first I've heard of this, because when I did my research, I, that she'd come over to the house on that Friday to discuss something to do with sheep. She wanted to talk about sheep and, and the land that you know the Dem Dykes and were on. And she just it happened to be there when Noel turned up, like, ah, my God, you know, I've, and this poor woman, Alice Nutter, she, I mean, my God, I mean, how absolutely terrible. Poor, poor woman and was hanged. Wrong place, wrong time. Oh, my God, that that story, I, I, honestly, when I, I looked into it, it, yeah, it brought tears to my eyes. It's very, very And funny enough, I was doing a, a, a theatre show and in the audience, I said, is there any questions? And somebody put their hand up at the back and he said, hello. He said, I know you've just written a book about the Pendle Witches. He said, I just want to say I'm a relation of Alice Nutter. And he went on to say, you know, wrong place, wrong time. She was a very wealthy woman. She certainly wasn't a witch and she just got caught up in it all. And I was like, oh, my God, you're a relation of Alice Nutter. This is this is incredible, you know. But they're very proud of Alice. And and it's so funny with the Pendle Witch. I really do believe government need to settle it once and for all and pardon them all. I really do. I think it's a real shame. Exactly. And I don't know why they haven't yet. Uh, well, not just the Pendle Witches, but anyone who's convicted under those ridiculous witchcraft laws which were complete nonsense. I agree. I mean, yeah. they pardoned all those who were executed World War One for alleged cowardice or desertion. They pardoned, you know, homosexual men who were convicted for lewdness under the old, you know, old those horrible old laws. They've done that. Why have they done it for witches? It's not going to cost them anything. It's it is a symbolic pardon. That's all they need to do. And I still don't understand why that hasn't happened. Me too. It, possibly fear. Anything to do with the paranormal, witchcraft, anything to do with that. People want to steer clear of it because they find it obscure and weird and, and, and frightening, I think. So stay away from it. That's the, They don't want anything to do with it, I think. I think that is it. Do you know, we could chat, couldn't we, for hours? We could go on and on. I've had the tip of the iceberg here, uh, yeah. Any quick spells for anybody feeling a little, you know, that the Pendle Witches would use? Any quickies that you've got left to leave us on? If you want a quickie, if you get a court, 
you make a wish and you tie a knot. You tie a knot in the cord for every witch, wish. Sorry, that ties the magic yeah. into the cord. And then <gasps> I carry love that. And then you keep all, the key. Or hang it somewhere Wonderful. special. Yeah, that's a good simple one. Oh, excellent. I shall do that. That's great. Barry McCann, award-winning writer, speaker and broadcaster. Thank you so, so much. And what's the name of the new book that's out at the moment? Right. Well, I've had a book of ghost stories published. It's called Now is the Night. Uh, I should say these are fictional ghost stories. They're not, you know, accounts that I've come across. They're all my own invention. Wonderful. Uh, been doing quite well. Um, I've noticed one reviews compared them to M.R. James, so I'm really proud of that because he's Oh, influenced. that's wonderful. You can get it from Amazon. You can get it from the publisher Buell Earthis, but you'll probably find Amazon will be easier with that name. And in fact, I'm just working on, well, just submitted my second collection, which is due out next year. And that's going to be called In Unfamiliar Dark. That sounds like a cracker. Barry McCann, an absolute joy as always. Good luck with the books. And I know we're going to speak to you soon. I look forward to it, Yvette. I really do. Thank you again. Well, I've done my knot. Have you? Hmm? Now, let's get the answer to this week's fact or fiction. To remind you, it was one of the earliest records of witches is in the Bible. What do you think? Well, fact or fiction? Well, the answer is fact. The book of 1 Samuel contains what is believed to be one of the earliest records of a witch. The entry was likely written between 931 BC and 721 BC. According to the History Channel, it, quote, tells the story of when King Saul sought the witch of Endor to summon the dead prophet Samuel's spirit to help him defeat the Philistine army. The witch roused Samuel, who then prophesied the death of Saul and his sons. The next day, according to the Bible, Saul's son died in battle and Saul committed suicide. So did you say fact? Congratulations if you did. So get in touch with me and share your stories. Here's the email address. It's contact at paranormalpod.co.uk. And we are on WhatsApp. And you know how I love hearing your voice. So please, please give me a call and leave me a voice message. 075-999-27537. We are on Instagram and our handle is at paranormalactivitypod. And it's there where we share our videos and photographs that you have sent in to us. And uh, we love to know what you think of the media that we put on there. Stay up to date with the newest episodes by giving us a follow and we should be back again same time next week. But if you can't wait until then, visit www.paranormalpod.co.uk where you can find options to get episodes a day early. Have a great week. Stay safe, my friends. And remember, things aren't always as they seem.